Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God. And we're going to be talking specifically again about the organization of church government. When Christ came preaching the Kingdom of God is at hand, the Kingdom is a government. It is a way to govern yourselves or to govern each other. And when we say words like government, we think of some somebody coming along and telling us what to do. I'm here from the government and I'm here to help. But the reality is there's all kinds of governments. There's governments that are literally anarchies. An anarchy is a government where the the government itself is titular. It doesn't have any exercising authority any more than anybody else has an exercising authority over what they choose to do. And that because it doesn't have this this powerful centralization of authority. The, the authority, you know, we talk about division of power in government. You know, the judicial branch, the uh, the legislative branch, and the executive branch. But the division in a free government is you and me and Steve and Bob and Ted and each of those individuals have the power of governing themselves and their families. And they have the power, they have a police power that if somebody in the community begins to rob other people and steal what they have a right to, take away their life, take away their property. Uh, you have a right as an individual to protect your neighbor from abuse, from um, thievery. You have that right. And that makes you the policeman of a free society. That you can do that. But now you you have an obligation to be careful that when you do that, that you don't infringe upon somebody's rights. That you do it justly. You do it righteously. And Christ was talking about this. This is one of the, the key points where he talks about what he calls the weightier matters. The weightier matters, according to Christ, is law, judgment, mercy, and faith. Law, judgment, mercy. Judgment and mercy has to do with righteousness. You know, I mean, somebody did something wrong. I, I actually have somebody I know just got a ticket for being under the influence of alcohol. When he was operating a motor vehicle. Sounds terrible. What he was doing was he was drinking kefir. <laughs> That's right. He had a bottle of kefir. It had been in his car and it had gotten warm and it started to bubble and it made alcohol. And he had just drank it before he was pulled over. And so he literally had enough alcohol on his breath to trip the breathalyzer. And, you know, he had to go to court and he had to prove and he had pictures of the bottle and everything. And evidently, uh, but he, you know, his blood count showed that he wasn't, you know, drunk. But there was enough alcohol in the kefir because kefir 
being a bacterial action, will produce alcohol. But a very small amount, but enough evidently to, to be detected. The, the, the reality is, is that according to one observation, he was in violation of a law. He had broken some law. Now, it's a man-made law. It's a legal system law. And uh, nobody was injured. Nobody's rights were infringed upon. But he broke the contract. He had alcohol on his breath. So it appeared that he had a certain level of alcohol in his body based on the breathalyzer test. And uh, so therefore he was in violation of an agreement, a contract with the state that he would not operate one of their motor vehicles under the influence of alcohol. And so he went to an administrative court and it decided whether or not he was really in violation of the agreement. But when we're talking about a violation of rights, rights come from where? His right to drive the vehicle came from the government because... It was a government vehicle, and you know it's a government vehicle. The use of it belongs to the government because in order to use your vehicle, you must pay a use tax, which is why you buy those little stickers. They expire, and so now you have to buy another one, so you get to use it. If you don't have that sticker, they get to take the car away from you because you don't really own it. You only have a legal title to it. So, you know, we explain all this in Law versus Legal so that you understand what the deal is, but none of that has to do, well, I shouldn't say it has nothing to do, but it has very little to do with natural rights. Those are legal rights established by contract, which most people are completely unaware of, which is why we've written whole books to make them available for free, along with hundreds of audios explaining how the system works. But how does the system of God work? Because you have rights there that didn't come down from the legislature. It came down from God. Well, one of the, the chief things, and I'm going to go back to this over and over again because it bears repeating, is that rights and responsibilities are co-relative. Rights and responsibilities are co-relative. They're, they're like the opposite sides of the same coin. You cannot spend one without spending the other. And you have not, you have no right to one unless you have the right to the other. And the reason most people don't have access to their natural rights is they do not take access to their natural responsibilities. That's the reason why. We're going to look at that in a number of different ways, but we're going to try to figure out how, what are your duties in a free government? What, what are your responsibilities? What are your rights in a free government? And how does that free government operate? Because most of you haven't got a clue. Most of the people out there in the world haven't got a clue how a free government works. There's no examples of them operating today in any any real capacity. As a matter of fact, the authoritarian centralized power government is so pervasive today, you can't even find, uh, well, you can't find any significant 
examples of an actual free government. People call bondage freedom today. They they don't know real freedom. They don't even know what they they don't like it when the bondage that they're in becomes a little oppressive or totalitarian. There's been a lot of activity lately where at least I see it occasionally on Facebook whenever I get there where people are showing, you know, some some cop brutalizing some poor citizen and arresting them and and all this stuff. And I have I have relatives who are cops and sheriffs and I have relatives who uh Actually, I don't have too many relatives been brutalized. I had that one friend who got uh, a ticket for driving for drinking kombucha. <laughs> but uh, uh, the uh, the reality is, that if you look at most of these cases, the the people who are being brutalized by the police officers, which happens. I mean, you got thousands of cops out there. You're going to have some that do things wrong. Um, but uh, in, in most cases, the people are not cooperative. They are not. They are not handling themselves right, and that's how they get into trouble. Uh, you have to. You can go look at the videos of how many cops get shot because somebody doesn't comply with, you know, turn around, put your hands on the car, and they got some excuse why they shouldn't do this, and they're arguing with the cop, and the cop's insisting upon them doing that. And the next thing you know, the guy pulls out a gun and shoots the cop. And kills him. Or wounds him terribly. Shoots him a bunch of times. Because, and the cop doesn't know whether you just don't want to turn around and put your hands on the car. Or you're trying to get in a position where you can pull a gun. He doesn't know. He He's stopping people all the time. And many of them maybe need stopping. And he's trying to be the police of society. Well, the mere fact that you have evolved your society to the point where you need professional policemen who have seemingly extra police powers, carrying around guns and equipment and all this stuff, instead of you and every every other neighbor carrying around sufficient equipment to protect every other neighbor, is because you've been slothful in the ways in in the weightier matters. You you haven't cared enough to protect your neighbor. And so therefore you end up with a society that evolves a powerful, authoritarian, even militarized militarized police department. That's your fault. You've allowed this to happen, generally speaking, speaking the collective you. Because so many of you have become lazy in the ways of righteousness. You haven't been seeking righteousness. You said, well, that's that's the policeman's job, to protect and serve. No, that's your job. That's everybody's job. To be concerned about the well-being of their neighbor. Because you're supposed to be loving your neighbor, Right? That doesn't mean sitting in a pew somewhere liking people and thinking good thoughts. It means actually going out there in the community and protecting them against abuse. And criminals. And, and um, rapists. You're supposed to be doing that. You know. 
You don't have to put on a superhero outfit and go around prowling the streets at night. But you ought to come together and keep an eye on it, on, out for each other. Care about each other. You, I mean, w- people don't... In a small community, everybody's kind of in everybody else's business. But in the big community, you don't even know what's going on in your neighbor's house. Maybe he doesn't want you to know. He doesn't want to know what's going on in your house. He doesn't care about you. You don't care about him. You had to evolve to a society like that where people die in their apartments and nobody knows it for six months or a year or unless the stench gets so bad. They don't even know. They don't care. You have to get to that point by arranging your society in a particular way. And that's... And it's usually arranged because you're lazy. You're slothful. You don't want to take the time to get together and watch out for one another. Keep an eye out for your neighbor. You want to go watch TV. You want to go to bed early. You want to read a book. You don't want to be bothered. So you hire professionals. And then they get more and more power and you wonder what happened. This This is the Saul Syndrome. Saul was a good guy. And he became a bad guy because people gave him power and that power tempted him and corrupted him. What do you expect when you give power to the police? I was just talking to a sheriff yesterday. And we were talking about the fact that, uh, talking about their job, talking about the fact that uh, sheriff's departments, you know, people in sheriff, police, whatever, need to get to know their community. They need to depend upon their community, have a relationship with their community where they're working together. And it's not a them and us mentality. But that would require that the community actually care about other people. You know, you see all these cars going down the street. I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. And I don't care about him. But uh, that's not that's not the ways of Christ, who says, "Love thy neighbor as thyself." Okay, so we got that idea. That we have to care about others. So how do we do it? A lot of the congregations at his church are are spread out. They're not right next door. They don't get together and you know shake hands and and uh, talk uh, you know and fellowship together they're often spread out so they they can get together on a phone call or or what have you but they don't actually physically get together that can be an advantage because you have to come together with that group not because you get the psychological endorphin rush of having your friends all together and you know and people hugging and people shaking hands and all these things that release endorphins in our mind, you you have to come together because of a motivation in your own heart. You have to show up and care about somebody who can't pat you on the back because then they're not there. And so you have to develop a different kind of motivation that is not simply based on personal attachment. 
And where does that power come from? Where does that motivation come from? And and that's that's a key element in understanding the kingdom is that that motivation must come from the Holy Spirit. But now there's other motivations where you want to design or direct what others are doing. They should come together and meet with me. They should come together and uh, you know show up at this call and that call and. Uh, they should do this thing or that thing. You know, you start putting requirements in your mind on them. Expectations of them. Well, that's that's tempting you to become like Saul. Where you're starting to require them. If they want to be liked by you, they're going to have to meet your expectations. These are very subtle things, but they start pulling you in a particular direction. And so I'm mentioning them because we're going to come back and look at them later as we go through this process of examining what does a free government really look like and what do you do to get there? What, where, where, how do you become a free people? Uh, according to Ralph Waldo Emerson, the purpose of life is not to be happy. You know, we have that life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You have a right to the pursuit of happiness. You don't necessarily have a right to happiness. But anyway, Ralph says uh, it is to be useful. The purpose of life is to be useful, to be honorable, to be compassionate. To have it make some difference that you have lived and lived well. That's, according to him, that's the purpose of life. And, of course, what was the purpose of God for creating the universe? If if we're to be made in the image of God, then His purpose should be our purpose. So, did He create the universe so that He would be happy? Or did He create the universe to give life to others? Give choice to others? God has to re- withdraw His right to tell you what to do to make you do what he wants done he has to withdraw his power over you in order for you to have choice in order for you to come together in a community of free people you have to withdraw your power your desire to have power over the actions of others that idea alone is amazingly liberating. When you don't need to regulate the actions of your neighbor to control what he's doing and the way he's doing it, your minister, your congregant, or anybody else, when you allow them to make their choices, that really sets you free. It's when you desire to control their choices and and make them meet your expectation that you are going to be drawn into bondage. Now, that's just a principle built into nature. There's nothing you can do about it. You have to be willing to set your neighbor free in order for you to become free. That's a basic principle. So... 
what are we going to talk about? How are we going to approach all this uh, idea of approach of church government? Now, we've done almost a dozen shows on this subject. Uh, we're going to be releasing some of them. Uh, some were made a year ago. And we're going to be putting them together in a little study program so that you can take a look at them. Uh, but our problem is, is that you have a mindset that has been constructed by trauma. And I'm reminded of the story of the five monkeys. Who are the five monkeys? Well, there were, there were five monkeys and they were in a cage. And they put in a deal where they could climb up, I don't know, it was a ladder or something, that they could climb up to this other level. And any time a monkey tried to climb up to the next level, the scientists squirted cold water on all those monkeys who were down on the lower level. And after doing this for a little while, they began to realize that if anybody tried to climb up that ladder, they immediately got sprayed with cold water. They didn't like that. So they started beating up any monkey that tried to climb up the ladder to the next level. Anybody who tried to go up, they would beat that monkey to stop him because they knew that if he tries to go up there, we're going to get sprayed with cold water again. They figured that out. That they're primordial brains. They figured that out. If he tries to go up there, we get sprayed with cold water. We get pain. We get uncomfortable. And so they, that was the habit now. Anytime they stopped them, nobody goes up that ladder. Nobody. Well, after a while, they replaced one of the monkeys with a monkey. They didn't have to even spray him with cold water anymore. They would not, the monkeys didn't go up because all the monkeys would beat them up if they tried to. So then they replaced one of the monkeys. And, of course, he didn't know about that rule. And so he tried to climb up. And as soon as he did, they grabbed him and started beating on him and said, No, no, you can't go up there. And then they replaced another monkey. And then they replaced another monkey. As each monkey learned not to go up that ladder, they just replaced another monkey. And eventually, none of the original monkeys, I think of this study, they had to, they had to have... You know, ten chimps, ten monkeys. <laughs> That's a lot of money. But guess what? They changed all the monkeys. None of these monkeys that were now in the cage ever were sprayed with cold water, but they would not allow any monkey to go up to the next level. They didn't know why. They didn't, None of them had any recollection of cold water. But they all learned, as a rule, we don't go to the next level. Now, what does that mean? Well, we'll talk about that when we return to Keys of the Kingdom.
So welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So what's the story of the five monkeys all about? What what's the what's the moral of the story? <laughs> how do, how does that this story apply to uh, our lives and this quest for the kingdom, this search for the kingdom? Uh, that's a good question, and that's what we're going to try to answer. We're going to try to answer that in a couple of different ways, and I'm going to tell you another story that is related to this. But not exactly the same. And it's actually a story in the, one of Solzhenitsyn's books. Probably the Gulag. I can't remember which one it was in. But um, Solzhenitsyn was a guy who wrote a letter. And uh, in it he criticized the leadership of his government. Which was basically the Soviet Union. And he was arrested and put into what they call the Gulag. Which is this chain of prisons which... Uh, was able to incarcerate large numbers of the Russian people, and in which many people died, wrote of bones, and all these places they were usually involving work projects. And uh, life was very hard. And he tells the story of a guy who had a cup of tea, with a little bit of tea in the bottom, and an ant. He put a ant in the cup, and the ant start to run around the cup. And there wasn't anything in the bottom of the cup. So eventually he started working his way up. And tried to climb out of the cup. Trying to find his way back. And the guy would just gently push the ant back down. Every time he tried to climb up. He would push the ant back down. He had some time on his hands evidently. No TV. And he just kept. Pushing that ant down and pushing that ant down until the ant ceased. Just stopped trying to climb out. Still went around and around and around, but it wouldn't try to climb out anymore. Because every time it tried to climb out, it failed. It didn't work. It didn't Something did not allow him to climb out. That was not the solution and he gave up on that idea. Because it didn't work enough times that he gave up on trying to climb out. Of course, climbing out was the key to maybe getting back. There would still be lots more adventures to go. He climbs out, and then where does he go from there? So, but at least he had a chance. But once he stopped trying to climb out, he was done. He was just going to circle in there until he eventually died. I don't know what the lifespan of an ant is, but uh, his days were numbered. So, now you have these two stories. They're, they're somewhat relative to each other, although they're slightly different approaches. One gave up on a solution because he wasn't allowed to go anywhere with it time and time again. So he just gave up on the only solution for getting out of the cup, which is to climb out the bottom. Not climb out through the top, rather. He's not going to drill a hole through the bottom. He, he gave up on the idea. He could have waited till the guy went to sleep and climbed out. Maybe that's what he actually did. <laughs> so, but the reality is, is uh, he stopped. 
And he was doomed to failure as long as he stopped. See, the guy could probably walk away, leave the cup there, and the, the ant would not climb out because he had already given up on the idea, even when the opportunity presented itself to actually successfully escape. He wasn't going to do it. He wasn't even going to try. So, keeping that in mind, let's go back to the five monkeys. Now, none of these monkeys that were in the cage at the end had ever been sprayed with cold water. They didn't know that that was a danger that somehow or other that if we tried it now, we would be sprayed with cold water. They didn't know that. They just knew that as a rule, we do not climb out. We stay here on this level. And anybody who tries to climb out needs to be beat because... Something bad may happen if you try to climb out. We might become uncomfortable again. We don't know, but as a rule, we believe that something bad will happen if we let you climb out. So they wouldn't let any of their fellow monkeys climb out because they feared something bad was going to happen. It was a tradition now to stop them from climbing out. So somebody on one of the groups wrote that they, they talked about sharing the kingdom, the ideas of the kingdom that they hear on these radio broadcasts uh, with other people around them. And they look at you like you're nuts. Like, what are you talking about? And this is this is very difficult to get across these ideas to other people who haven't heard 300 hours of radio broadcasts, who haven't read half a dozen books on and pamphlets on on the kingdom and shown all these different things that we show you on a regular basis that most people don't understand. They don't even though it's right there in the biblical text, they just they just miss it because they don't understand the language, they don't understand the history of the time, they don't understand the rele- relevance of some of these things like the Corbin of the Pharisees making the word of God to none effect. They don't know what that Corbin of the Pharisees are. Or was. Or is. Because we have Corbin today. We Everybody sacrifices annually to put money in the treasury to take care of the needy of their society. That's, that's what Corbin was about. To take care of the service of the temple. The temple was the service of the nation. You know, I mean, all Abraham's friends didn't come to his aid because he had set up piles of stone to burn sheep up on. They come to his aid because those stone altars were systems of social welfare that helped sustain their community and the health of their community and bring their community together through faith, hope, and charity. And when Abraham was threatened, they said, Abraham has given us this great wisdom. Let's go help Abraham. And that's why they all grabbed up their swords and their shields and went to help Abraham defeat these kings who had defeated Sodom and Gomorrah and other city-states. Because Abraham had this great idea of setting up a social welfare system based on faith, hope, and charity. And because he did that, their nations remained free and strong and healthy so that 
if someone were to attack them, they would all gather together and defend themselves and their neighbor because they were used to taking care of their neighbor. They knew their neighbor. They had taken the time through their system of altars of living stones to care for one another. Teutons did this. Franks did this. The, the Jutes did this. The Issachs did this. And Israel did this. And it made them a strong nation. When a nation got away from that and created a Nimrod-type power, a central power that will force the contributions of the people by exercising authority one over the other, their societies were doomed. They would be dividing their society, dividing the people, and when they were attacked, they would be overwhelmed and taken into captivity because that what made them great was the practice of a great concept of loving thy neighbor as thyself. That is what makes them great as a nation. But we've gotten away from that. We've become... Ants circling in the bottom of a cup. And nobody is allowed to climb out of that cup. To go to the higher level. Because something uncomfortable will happen. Now what what uncomfortable would happen if you started to actually love your neighbor as yourself? One of the first things that is uncomfortable that's going to happen. Is you're going to discover... We should have been doing this all along, but we weren't. We aren't saved. We aren't following Christ. I don't care how much you've read the Bible. If you do not have, if you have not gathered together and formed a daily ministration to take care of the needy of your society through faith, hope, and charity in the perfect law, according to the perfect law of liberty, you haven't repented. You haven't turned around your thinking. You're not saved. I don't care how much you can quote from the Bible. I don't care how much you can talk about this eschatology or that eschatology. I don't care how right you are about all the other theories that you have about Christ and religion and revelations and prophecy. If you do not have a and are striving daily to create a daily ministration to take care of the needy of your society in a way that strengthens them, If you don't have that, you haven't yet repented. You're still thinking like the rest of the world. If you're taking the benefits, if you're applying to the benefits, what grace have you? If you're not contributing daily, regularly, weekly, monthly, whatever, on a regular basis, to a system of charity that takes care of the needy of society by faith, hope, and charity... If you're not doing that daily, you haven't repented. You're still being slothful. You, you're not, you haven't gone up to the second level. You're still down there. And if you fault anybody who seeks to do that, to create a system of charity based on faith, hope, and charity, a system of welfare based on faith, hope, and charity, If you're not working together with them or if you want to thwart them in any way, make their life difficult in any way, condemn them in any way, you're one of them five monkeys. 
And what what's the uncomfortable thing you're worried about? Is the fact that you're going to realize that you haven't repented yet. You're not saved yet. You don't really love Jesus yet. And you're not doing anything according to his name. You know, I just heard a little clip from a speech given by the President of the United States reminding us that the Crusades, many of the evil things of the Crusades, were done in the name of Jesus Christ. Inquisition. Done in the name of Jesus Christ. No, it wasn't. Inquisition was never done in the name of Jesus Christ. Inquisition was, uh, the, the Crusades were never done in the name of Christ. Now, there were men going around saying that they were doing these things in the name of Christ. But that's this is what they were saying. That doesn't make it so. They, that was their claim. But they were taking the name of the Lord in vain. So, therefore, they weren't really doing it. In the, if you're doing any wicked, evil thing, and claiming to be making doing that in the name of Christ, but it's not in the name of Christ. What does it mean to do something in the name of Christ? I've, I've, I've told this many times, but you need to get this in your head. You're only doing something in the name of Christ if you're doing it according to the character of Christ. His name is not Yeshua. His name is... He has many names. The Prince of Peace. If you're not doing it in the character of the Prince of Peace, you're not doing it in the name of Jesus Christ. You're doing it out of hate and revenge and selfishness and pride and arrogance. That's not the name of Jesus Christ. That's not the character of Jesus Christ. And you're not doing it in His name. You're taking His name and using His name in vain. You're saying a word that you identify with him in vain because you're not really doing it in the name of Christ, in the character of Christ, in the way of Christ. You're a worker of iniquity. He doesn't even know you. You don't even know him. You say, Jesus, but you don't know him. Get you from him, he will say. Like I said, you know, when in the Inquisition, when they were burning people at the stake, there was somebody there. Always, there was always somebody there who was evil. Most of the time, it was the guy with the match, the guy setting the fire to kindle the flames. So anyway, don't be a f- monkey. Be willing to go up to the next level. Don't beat anybody up because they're pointing out that, no, you you haven't been seeking the kingdom of God. That's what they you say. You should be seeking the kingdom of God because you haven't been doing that. And they want to beat you up. They want to say you're some sort of apostasy or heresy or whatever. Or oh, what am I preaching? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. That means you should be seeking His benefits because His benefits come through faith, hope, and charity, not force, fear, and violence. If you receive any benefits from the government, even Social Security, you're receiving benefits through force, fear, and violence. Now, am I saying you can't collect your Social Security check? No. 
But every time you do it, that should be like cold water waking you up. That you need to work daily with every fiber in your body to create a system of social welfare based on faith, hope, and charity. I know somebody who, who's really hard up for money. Hardly anything. Barely getting by. Struggling for righteousness. Or at least what he thinks is righteousness. I mean, he's trying. He's, he's looking. And yet he, he takes the time to donate some money to somebody who's talking about the kingdom. Not very much money, but it doesn't matter. Uh, I mean, it's what he's got. What it was was the widow's mite all about? It's not about a mound. I mean, obviously, if you're pulling down millions and you give five bucks or ten bucks, that doesn't that doesn't amount much. <laughs> but if you you barely have enough to feed yourself, and you're living extremely modestly and, 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 you know, struggling to make ends meet and you find time to send a few bucks, God's going to notice that. God's going to give some sort of blessing because of that. Now, there may be other things you need to see and do. You know, I'm not going to, I'm not preaching a prosperity gospel. If you give, God will give to you. But the truth is that He will. But He may not give you monetarily. He may give you, because if He gave you monetarily, He's giving you power, like Saul got. And that may corrupt you. He may give you in another way. He may soften somebody's heart towards you. And they actually begin to care about you, which is really. What 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 did Ralph say? <laughs> well, that you made a difference in somebody's life. You made them their mind open up and think differently. You 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 couldn't climb up to the next level because the monkeys kept beating you down. But maybe you helped somebody else get up to the next level, somebody who's near and dear to you by your example. So anyway, we have three questions that I, I sent out to the network. And you should be on the network. And uh, the network's just a bunch of email groups. But the Living Network, that's the congregations of record. People who are actually not only coming together, it, but admitting they're coming together. They are numbering themselves amongst the congregants of God. In other words, they put themselves there. The world's numbered you, but have you numbered one another in in the church established by Jesus Christ? And if if so, what what should that church be doing? What we what should you be looking for? And the questions were: What are the specific duties of a minister of his church? What are the specific duties of an ordained minister of his holy church? And what is the specific duties of a congregant of his church? Somebody who's congregating in one of these core groups, these congregation of recorded elders. Now, we, we call it a congregation of record. It could be a congregation of testimony, but then you've got COT, but COR, Congregation of Recorded Elders, is C-O-R-E, 
And that actually forms a kind of anagram that means something, a core group. And so we went with Congregation of Record. That's what we call it. That's what we, we named it that. But it's really a congregation of testimony. And that testimony is not what you say, but what you do. Why? Why do I say that? Because that's what Christ said. Not those who say, Lord, Lord. Not those who say, I believe in Jesus. Not those who say, I accept Jesus as my personal Savior. But those who actually do what Jesus said to do. Which is to is the action word love. To love thy neighbor as thyself. To care about their neighbor as much as you care about yourself. To sacrifice your time, your energy, your money, your stuff for others. Because you care about others as much as you care about yourself. It's what you do that God's going to take note of. Not just what you say. So what are these duties? These duties are your rights. They are your responsibilities. Remember, religion used to be defined just a couple hundred years ago, even a hundred years ago. And there's still dictionaries that have this definition. Religion is the performance of your duties to God and your fellow man. So what's the duties of a minister, ordained minister, or a congregant? What's your duties to God and your fellow man? To take care of the widows and orphans of society, the the needy of society. Unspotted by the world makes it pure religion. Not using the constitutional order and system of government that exercises authority one over the other. That world. You're not to use that world. But you do. You do use that world. Okay, so work towards not using that world. You know, I don't mind you having a safety net when you're learning to write, walk a typewrite. I think it's a good idea. But the safety net's going to go away. And so you need to operate as if there is no safety net. You need to work towards the day where you are so good at walking the tightrope to the kingdom that you don't need the safety net. So people want to form an intentional community. We've had a number of articles we sent out on an intentional community recently and we've been adding to them. And uh, if you're not on the network, you probably didn't see it. And so whose fault is that? That's yours. Because you're not on the network. (laughs) You didn't take the time to network with other people seeking the kingdom. You say, well, I I got my eschatology. I got my Bible. I got my, you know, a couple of my buddies. I do my own thing. I I don't need to be a part of the... Well, you don't join with others in congregation because you don't need them. You join because they might need you. You don't join a congregation because it makes you happy. But helps you do what is righteous. It helps you tend to the weightier matters. Networking together helps you tend to the weightier matters. The whole point of feasts. Feasts of Pentecost. Feasts of Tabernacles. 
was to bring the people together so that they could number one another, account for one another. That's what the word means, to account for one another in a network of of congregations of the people, for the people and by the people, to tend to pure religion so that nobody had to depend upon a government that exercised authority one over the other. They were a government of the people, for the people, by the people, operating according to the perfect law of liberty through faith, hope, and charity. That is the duty of every congregant, ordained minister, or minister of the church established by Jesus Christ. So how do we do that? What does that look like? We'll talk about that when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom. have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. back to the keys of the kingdom so we're talking about all this monkey business of five monkeys to get into the habit of not letting anybody go up to the next level because every time they tried to do it they were sprayed with cold water then they changed all the monkeys over one at a time until nobody had ever been sprayed with cold water, but they still would not allow anybody to go up to the next level because they had accepted the idea and passed that idea on to others that if you go to the next level, something bad is going to happen. 
And of course, then I equated this with the idea that people, especially those who are studying the Bible, get a sense of self-righteousness because, they, you know, Christ was a great figure in history. Great ideas. So people want to identify with Christ. Identify with being right. They want to appear to be right. They want to think they're right. Which we discussed earlier in the series about what does it feel like to be wrong? Well, it feels great. It feels fine to be wrong. Because the real question is, what does it feel like to discover that you're wrong? Because see, most people who are wrong, they don't know they're wrong. They think they're right. And so, being wrong feels right. That's why they continue to feel that way. But to feel, to know that you're wrong, that doesn't feel so good. Well, it can feel good if you forgive yourself for being wrong. You forgive all those people who told you something that was wrong, that was not true. There's no no problem with going up to the next level. The problem is the guy with the cold water hose. Escaping out of Sojanichin's teacup. It's simply a matter of climbing up the edge of the teacup and climbing over. There's no problem with doing that. The problem was Sojanichin kept pushing him down. When Sojanichin goes to sleep, you can get out. What's happened in the world today is that people are keeping each other in bondage. And they don't even know they're doing it. They know they they know there's some sort of bondage. There's a problem. They can feel the pain of that. And they're crying out. But nobody's hearing them. The Lord's not going to hear their cries. They can imagine He's hearing them. They can imagine they're doing the will of God. And they can imagine that, you know, they're doing great things in God's name. But Christ is going to come to them and say, Get ye from me, you workers of iniquity. I don't even know you. You don't even know me. You want to get to know Christ? You have to follow Christ. Where did Christ go? He went to sacrifice. He went to serving others. He went to caring about others. Healing others. You need to gather together in a congregation not so that you feel self-righteous, but that you do righteousness. That you actually, as a congregation, start caring about others. Now, our congregations are always small. There should be ten families. Which, if families were actually together, if daughters were married and husbands, you know, sons were married, you know, family could be twenty, thirty people. And you get ten of them together, we're talking two, three hundred people. But families are all broke up. Men are not always married. Girls are not always married. They're not always having children. And they're having few children at that. And even if when they get married, how many times have they been divorced? And the families are a mess. And you're divided as families. There are very few strong families. We have some in the network that are real strong families. And God had to beat some of them up a bit. In order to get them to be strong families. <laughs> you know. Uh, 
you know, gave, created hard times for them at times. And this brought them closer together as a family. It was a blessing. And I'm like, Lord, why did you let all this bad stuff happen? Make you stronger. You know, like, like the guy in, um, you know, increasing the weights. It, but it's so heavy. But that makes you stronger. Didn't break you as a family. It made you stronger as a family. Now, you were probably already well on your way to doing that. You know, like you may have taken on the extra burden of home education. You may have taken on the extra burden of learning to cook foods and prepare foods that were healthier for your family. And get a little flack for it, too, from your family. Oh, we can't have that? No, it's not good for you. But it tastes so good. Yeah, but it's not good for you. I mean, you can have it once in a while, but you you got to have a good diet. You know, it's just like, you know, anything. You know, too much of a tasty thing is often bad for you. <laughs> so you have to, sometimes you create little burdens in your life to make your family stronger. You give your kids chores. Or give them responsibilities. Give them duties that they have to perform. Why? Because you want to be mean? No, because it strengthens them. So now we go back to our questions. <laughs> what is the duties of a minister of his church? Well, we started out with something called a PCM, a personal contact minister. So we didn't have any ministers of the church hardly. We were just starting out and we you know, I've been writing these books. God gave me the insight to write some of these books and I wrote them and people said, "Okay, what do we do?" Well, to me, it always seemed obvious, but to other people, sometimes you have to explain it. You know, it's like learning to walk. You know, that you, your kids see you walking, you think, well, they'll just get up and start walking eventually. No, they, they don't necessarily do that. They have to. They have to be motivated sometimes. They have to be helped up. And then, you know, hold on to your finger for a while and walk. But eventually you want them walking on your own. You don't want no 40-year-old kid still holding on to your finger when he's trying to walk. He's got to learn to walk on his own. I always remember that my son, he, he couldn't couldn't hardly walk unless you let him hold your finger. And so what I did was I held a, one of those round clothespins and he held the round clothespin. And he could walk. But if I let go of the clothespin, he still held on to the clothespin and felt like he could walk and he wouldn't fall because he was holding the clothespin. Gave him a sense of security. Well, that's what churchanity is. You have a congregation and it will give you a sense of fellowship, a sense of community. But you have to let go of that and still walk the walk. You know, and so how do you do that? Well, you give them a clothespin to hold. You give them a ritual. You give them something, you know, to uh, give them that feeling of belonging or being still being supported until they can stand on their own. 
So that's what, that's one of the reasons why you gather together and we nominate a congregation. We name a congregation. Even though the congregation is not a, uh, it's a free assembly. It's not an association. And it remains a free assembly because everything they give, they give entirely. If they, if you, you give with stipulation, then in law, you become an association. But when you give something up entirely, then you remain a free assembly. Now, some of you probably haven't followed that, but we and we won't go into it here. But that's very important that your congregation congregations remain free assemblies. You have a natural right to peaceably assemble. That's a natural right. It's not a legal right. It's a natural right. In order for your congregations to remain free assemblies, whatever they contribute to that assembly must be completely and freely given. So what makes you an assembly? The fact that you all gave to the same guy, to the same stone of the altar. That that you've numbered yourselves with this group. The common denominator is the character of Christ. But we nominate within the body of Christ, you're that congregation. Now, this is an important concept to realize because it will define by necessity the duties of the minister of that congregation. That minister of that congregation is not a member of that congregation. And we use the word member in this most general sense. Because it's a free assembly. You're not persons within an assembly because then you would be an association. You're a free assembly of individuals. You are all kings and priests in your own household who have chosen to freely come together. Not in a summit. And of course we can go and look at the definition of the word summit. But as individuals. You have freely gathered and you can freely walk away at any time. Now you have a duty and responsibility to those you gather with. But it's your natural duty and responsibility. It's not a contractual one. It's a natural one. In order for you to remain free, it cannot become contractual. You're to have no covenants with them. And the minister is not your God. He's not even a member of your assembly. You gather around him because he's going to connect you to other assemblies. So that you're not just a congregation of God, but you're part of the kingdom of God, the body of God. Now again, we go back to what I talked about on the first show on this particular monkey business. Is that you, you're gathering together freely. Separately, as individuals, not as some sort of corporate unit. The corporateness of your nature is in the spiritual realm. It's a spiritual corporation. It's not a physical corporation. You gather together and you you organize yourselves into these congregations of record 
And you pick a minister who is good at connecting with other ministers. Because that he will become your connection, your lifeline, your rope to the other congregations of the kingdom. He will be your, you know, you plug into him. You tell him, he tells ten ministers, nine other ministers like himself, and now you've got, and they tell their people, and you've got a thousand people working on this. Your congregations become a prayer chain. But it's a prayer chain of action, too. Because they will not just say, oh, we'll pray for you. They will actually pray for you in a way that includes action. Prayer in action. And and that action will be based on charity. Because you might need some money. You might need somebody to pay a medical bill. You might need somebody to put a roof on your house. We have somebody whose house burned down. He, and they've, there have been men who've gone and helped him build a new house. And, uh, might have been some better ways to do it, but they've chosen that way and, but they haven't quite finished the roof yet. Needs more help. Maybe people want to go there and help him. And through the network, you can find out who he is and where he is and whether or not you can be of assistance in helping him get that roof on. But that's up to you. See, you have to take the initiative. I'm not going to tell you on the radio. You you join a congregation. This is personal business. So you have to join a congregation and go to your minister. And every one of the ministers knows who I'm talking about. And then you can figure out what you can do from there. You have to you have to participate. You have to walk the walk. That's your duty to your fellow man to care about the weightier matters and the needs of your fellow man. You want to do something to establish an intentional community. You you want to I can show you all kinds of intentional communities you don't want to have anything to do with. You want to be in communion with people who care about others as much as they care about themselves. If they care about, if they want to join a community because they're looking for somebody to, you know, if we get together and a bunch of people buy land, you know, I can't afford land. And so if we all get together, we can buy land and we can go on there and we can be a community. And then you help me build my house and I help you build your house. Well, the pilgrims all tried that. They were going to have a community. An intentional community. Based on the Bible, they thought. They almost all died. Half of them were dead the first year. Why? Because life was hard. Life was harder the next year. Life was harder the next year. But something changed and suddenly they started becoming successful. They started doing something a little bit different. And suddenly they started becoming successful. Now, two things were attributing to the success. One is the, a lot of the people. Well, I, you know, I even shouldn't say the laziest people died out. Because the chances are some of the people who died out first were actually the hardest workers. They were killing themselves, working. 
exhausting themselves working and then taking their fruits of what they had and putting it in the common storehouse so that everybody... But they were more exhausted. They were more depleted because they had put more in. But they could only take out so much. And then eventually there wasn't enough. And their personal reserves in the flesh were not enough and they died. Because they were hard workers, but they were not wise workers. Because once they put it in the common storehouse, they relinquished their power over it. They gave up their power over it. And they put everything in the common storehouse. And they had nothing left for their own reserve. That isn't according to the Christ's plan. That isn't according to God's plan. That isn't according to nature. So, what is according to nature? What is according to God's plan? Private property. What you produce is yours. That's absolutely essential in a free society. It's not a, a, the common purse runs towards death. The Bible tells you that. But yet we have people who think they're Christians and socialists at the same time. So what is the duties of a minister? Well, I mentioned the PCM, the personal contact minister. A personal contact minister, let's put it, get that out of the way, is not a minister of the church. He's a personal minister of an individual who has volunteered to help connect that individual with the rest of an email network so that he can form a congregation of record. He's not working for the church. He's working for... And because two people say, this is our personal contact minister, we put their name up. We'll put their picture up. Now, we have a new rule. And we're letting that... If you're not a member of a congregation, you can't be a personal contact minister. And your picture will come down. Your name will come down. And we can make that rule because the personal contact minister isn't a minister of the church. He just, so if some, if we've actually had people who pick personal contact ministers in the network who didn't even know about the network. I said, well, how does that work? Well, that's who I want to be my, but he's not connected to any of us. You know, but that's who I want as my personal contact minister. Well, so is he even on the email groups? No, he's not. Does he know any of us? No, he doesn't. You know, you know what that's like? That's like going down to the hardware store and buying a plug socket, you know, one of those little receptacle plug sockets, and taking it back to your house and plugging your power tool into it and then pulling the trigger and wondering why it doesn't run. I, I plugged it in, but it's not connected to any electrical Wires. There's no wires getting. It's, it's, you just took it out of the package and plugged it in. There's no battery in it. I mean, where, where do you expect to? Well, it's plugged in. I mean, a very blonde thing to do. No picking on blondes here, but th- that's what that's like. But yet, there's a guy, who's supposedly an intelligent systems operating kind of guy, and he picks a contact minister who's not connected to anybody. Crazy. 
But we put them up because they have they have been contact ministers for somebody else. That doesn't necessarily mean they're your contact ministers. They're not working for the church. We don't regulate them in any other way. But now we require that they also be members of a congregation or they will be removed from that list. And they have to be viable members. Now, what's a viable member of a congregation? Well, in ancient Israel, they had an idea of a half shekel. Everybody had to give a half shekel, which is like a dime or half dime. Uh, they had to give that every year. Or they were out. They're, they'd cross their name out. They had to give it. Now, if you didn't even have a half shekel, but you were struggling and somebody had compassion, they could pay your half shekel. But the point is, that little tiny little token was required every year from everybody. There was no tithing required. You should tithe. But nobody. there was nothing enforceable about that. Because it was a free society. Even though that tithing was what supported the government, it supported the welfare system, all those things, it was freely given. But the half shekel, you had to give annually. It was required. What was the punishment if you didn't give it? You were out. Nobody's going to come and beat down your door for a half shekel, but you're out. You're not a viable member anymore. You're not a participant. So you had to be a participant on a regular annual basis. And it's just a way of marking who's participating. And it was freely given, like all the offerings, free will offering. But it was a way of marking it. It was a ritual and ceremony. It was one of those clothespin things that it gave the minister something while well, you're still anning into the game. Now, if you don't give any of the rest of the time, you're not going to win any pots either. <laughs> it just allows you to get cards. <laughs> it doesn't allow you any right to the pot. And so, you know, that's the way it works. So, PCM is nothing to do with the church. It has to do with an email group. But it follows the same pattern. If two or more witnesses establish you as a PCM. And you have some criteria that you have to meet in order to be considered that PCM. But now a minister of record, a minister of a congregation of record, a minister of his church, all the same thing. It's an ex officio position where two or more people, again, just like the PCM, pick somebody as they're not their personal contact minister, but as a minister of Christ. And they fill out what we call an SPT form, a sacred purpose trust. And so they say, I pick him, but they ante up. They give something that's at least a half shekel of value. You know, a bag of chocolate, a tube of cock, the shirt off their back, uh, a hatchet and knife set. Um, I mean, people are given all kinds of things. But they give something to him for Christ, for him to manage for Christ. And he does that. And there's, there's a lot more stipulations to that particular office. But basically, that's what you're doing. That's a sacred person. And they make a paper record of it. Gave this 
to this minister, desiring him to be my minister of the church. They send that to uh, us, and we look at it, and we may sign it and witness it, or we may sit on it for a long period of time until we find out if this is really sincere, honest claim. And we know that by what they do. Not by what they say, not even by what they've written, but by what they do. And when we decide that the time has come, then we we bear witness and we accept that. And that person becomes, in our eyes, a minister of the church. And the other person we consider to be in a genuine, authentic congregant of the church. But they're not really members of anything other than the fact that we see, we now will bear witness. They appear to be seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness. But that's our opinion. And that opinion may change. It doesn't change your status. We can't change your status. We don't have the power to change your status. And this whole document that we've gone over in numerous shows now, as far back as a year, it, they're trying to use this fact that you congregate to, to change your status. What changes your status? What gave you your status? What brought you into bondage? What made you merchandise? It wasn't, it wasn't the government that made you merchandise. It wasn't the church that made you merchandise. It was your covetous practices. That makes you merchandise. That's what it says. I mean, I'm not making this up. Through covetous practices, you will be made merchandise. Pretty clear. So what's going to make you not merchandise? Well, it's going to be God. It's going to be the grace of God. But what what practices are going to set you free? If If the practice of covetousness makes you... In bondage, if the practice of giving power to others uh, takes away the ear of God, then the practice of charity will begin to set you free. And the practice of taking back your responsibilities will give you the ear of God. He will hear you again. And that's why you gather in congregations. For what you can do for others. Not for what it will do for you. We're going to talk more about this in Intentional Communities when we come back to Keys to the Kingdom. So welcome back. Uh, so now, you know, write that down. Uh, what's got you trapped 
in bondage in the world today, subject to uh, terrorists and uh, authoritarian uh, tyrants and and your neighbor <laughs> who is taking a bite out of you on a regular basis so that he can have free education, free health care, etc., etc., and then you're working and working and working. I saw that you know that these people lined out across the highway holding hands and and um, uh, blocking traffic. And I thought those guys should go get a job. <laughs> I mean, how what do those people do for a living? They have all this time to go out and stand in the road and block traffic so that other people can't get to work. Now, I will admit that a lot of those people going to work are selfish and and not kingdom seekers. And, you know, they're out to make a buck for themselves. So they, they, they have money and they get to go party and all that kind of stuff. But at least they're working. Now, the guys, not only do they not work, they keep others from it. <laughs> Does that sound familiar? Uh, they, uh, that's like the Pharisees who... Uh, not only will they not go into the kingdom, they keep others from it. That's because all the Pharisees have been monkeying around for a long time. They don't want anybody going up on the next level. Makes them look bad. They want to. They want everybody to think that they're the top. They're in control. Now you got all these candidates running for office and stuff like that. I guess uh, uh, one of the candidates just picked their running mate. I won't say who it is, but he's he's definitely a statist. But he's got a lot of the appearance of godliness, you know, married to the same woman and, you know, believer supposedly. But does he believe in statism or the kingdom of God? Because the kingdom of God works by faith, hope, and charity. It doesn't work by force, fear, and violence. So if he's still looking at a government that forces the contributions of the people to take care of the needy of society... He still has not repented and he is not a following Christ and he isn't following Christianity and he isn't what you want. But then again, maybe you don't know what you want. You know, I, I quoted Ken O'Keefe, uh, you know, who talks about exposing the financial system. He said, if you ask me how the world functions, then you have to understand one thing, plain and simple. The head of the snake, the system of power, is headed by the financial system. People want to hear that kind of stuff. Because then you got, oh, we can blame the bankers. <laughs> or we can blame the Gestapo or the police or the whatever. They're always looking for somebody to blame. And then I come along and say, no, it's not their fault. It's your fault. And people go like... Oh, beat him up. <laughs> He's trying to take us up to the next level. And we know what happens then. And somebody says, well, what does happen then? <laughs> if we actually take back our responsibilities, somebody might throw cold water on us. Uh, they don't even know that. But the point is, this, you know, like the power to coin money. That's such a simple little concept. We talk about the power to coin money. The government, the government's the only one that has the power to coin money. They got a monopoly on it. 
What does it mean, coin money? It means to stamp a value. A numerical, a denomination, a value on the coin. Can I do that with his church? Can I stamp a value on it and say this is his church and that is not his church? Now I can have an opinion. But I don't, can I ordain a minister? You know, that was one of the things that in, in the church document they were reviewing that the congregation was ordaining a minister. As soon as the congregation ordains a minister, the world has a nexus on that minister. Because he was ordained by somebody who's of the world. He's got to be ordained by God. And you, I mean, it seems like it's such a simple thing that all you're doing is bearing witness that you believe that he's ordained by God. You're not ordaining him. And that's all I can do. And I can withdraw my witness. I can say, I ordained you. I didn't ordain you. I recognized your ordination. I gave a recognition. A simple little switch of words. Very important in looking at the spirit of what's going on. You do not ordain. Now, now I've told people that. They'll memorize that and they'll repeat it back to me like they know what they're talking about. And that's why I don't tell people everything. Because then they become parrots and it becomes a little harder to tell. But the fact is that I know people aren't really seeking the kingdom because they're not really giving. Christ came to give. Give his life. Give his wealth. If you're not coming to do that, I mean, if you're coming to... Because I want you to start an intentional community that I can join and be separate from the world. What? (laughs) You haven't repented yet. You're going to head. You're you're going to be setting up a golden calf right away, <laughs> and you're going to be bowing down and worshiping. And, and that church document eventually, that's what it did. It gave the judicial power to the church. No, you can't do that, especially if you don't have it, because you already gave it up to somebody else. And your parents have sold you into slavery. Now the only way back is to stop your covetous practices and start to strive daily to sacrifice yourself because you care about your neighbor as much as you care about yourself. You care about your neighbor's freedom as much as you care about your own. And therefore, you're not going to be dictating expectations to your congregants or to your ministers as to what you expect from them or else you're going to pick up your toys and leave. You're here freely assembling. To learn to give instead of be covetous. You can't even be covetous of what you have. Much less what your neighbor has. He has a right to choose of what he's going to do. You have a right to choose of what you're going to do. You have to come together and self-organize yourself. You cannot hew the stones of the altar. The fellow ministers cannot hew the stones of the altar. They cannot... Touch them with any kind of force or compelled expectation. You have to learn to fit together. You can't do that unless you learn to forgive. Because forgiving is letting go, withdrawing your desire to control others. 
God gave you free choice by withdrawing His natural inclination as a creator to control His creation. But by His true nature, He withdrew His ability and right to control you, to puppet you, and said, you get to choose. Follow me or not. Now, you get that choice, but with that choice comes the responsibility. And that's what makes you in God's image. But see, you haven't been exercising that responsibility because you haven't been taking care of one another. Everything hinges. If you want an intentional community, you have to start sacrificing. Now, to who you sacrifice, how much you sacrifice, when you sacrifice, that's going to be up to you. But you can't cheat. You can't fake this. You can't just say, I've accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and it be true. You have to be a doer of the Word. If you accept that Jesus, you want to do things in the name of Jesus, then you have to start giving up and sacrificing. You don't have to sacrifice to me, but you have to sacrifice of yourself for somebody else on a regular basis. And the more you do that, I mean, look how much Christ did it. But you have to do it in His name. So you have to do it not so that you get something back like the prosperity gospel. You have to freely give, entirely give in hope that God will give you back. So the idea of your congregation giving to another congregation on the other side of the country is way better than giving to people right around you. I'm, you know, I've had ministers who who said, you know, I asked them why aren't you joining with the other congregation, other ministers? Because I'm going to focus on those who love me. I'm going to focus on my congregation. As if he owns it or something. Now, he was very good at memorizing that particular one, and it's, I could actually name several people who have done the same thing. It's a, it's a, we we've never gone up the steps. We haven't gone up to the next level. We don't even know what it looks like at the next level yet. We we've heard reference to this kingdom of God, but we don't know what that really looks like. So we read about it and we put together this image in our own mind, but that's all in the tree of knowledge. And so now if I tell you, no, you don't want to be, that's not your congregation. That's your congregation to serve, but it's not your congregation. You don't get any grace for loving those who love you. You only get grace well, I'm not going to say you don't get any, but you won't get the grace you need until you love those who don't love you. Which is one of the great advantages to loving your enemy. Because you know he don't love you. Now you can love, you know, like you give to your minister. Because that's the, that's the circulation. That's the way it goes. It goes through the veins of the body. This networking system of circulation, which is the church. And then he gives to somebody else. Now, he may give back to somebody in your congregation, but he should be giving also to other congregations. And he could give directly, or he could give to his minister who will give to other congregations. You see, that's, that's, the, way, that's the way a body works. 
you know, you get capillaries putting blood one cell at a time into an, a vein. And then it goes to another and it goes to another and it goes to, it gets wider and wider until, you know, you've got huge veins and arteries and pumping through the heart and to the lungs and feeding the whole body and taking away the waste. That's how the body works. So you gotta, you gotta go through the circulatory system. If you cut through that circulatory system and say, oh, I just want to give direct. You know, I want, I, I'm, I got blood down here in the feet and I want to give it directly to the heart. I don't want to go through the circulatory system. Well, you can do that, but you have to cut through things. <laughs> and then we get this process called bleeding. <laughs> so don't do it that way. Go through the network. Because that strengthens the veins. It creates this uh, vascular uh, pressure system. In a closed system of circulation. Do your responsibility and let the next guy do his. So that the whole body is healthy. So, anyway, I'm giving you kind of an analogy. So, what are the duties of the ministers of his church? One of the biggest duties is connecting you to the other congregations. By being a member of a congregation of ministers. That is absolutely essential. Because that's what he is. He's a junction point in the circulation of charity. Charity is what, when you give in the name of Christ, in other words, in a way that strengthens the poor, that's going to bring a blessing to you. But if you want to do it within the body, you give it to the minister, to the altar, to the living stone altar. That minister needs to learn to fit together with other ministers who are doing the same thing with other people. He has to learn to fit together because we cannot hew him. We cannot make him conform. We cannot alter his shape. We cannot impose our expectations upon him. But we are seeking the expectations of Christ. But we can't impose it. So he has to learn to fit together. If he continuously for does not fit together with the other ministers. He may be rejected. Because he's chosen not to fit together. So it's very important that your ministers congregate together as a congregation. But you can't force that. It has to come about by choice. The same as your free assembly came together, so do the ministers come together. And it is just as important that those ministers who are ministers maybe already of some home church or some group connect with other ministers by forming a congregation of record and then getting access to other ministers seeking the kingdom of God and then come on the calls with them and meet when they meet and then Maybe meet at Pentecost. Maybe meet at the feast, uh, the fall feast, and organize, get to know each other. Then you shake hands, and you go home with this clothespin network connection, where you can call somebody up, you can write them, you can talk to them, and you're part of this congregation of ministers. 
It's not enough to teach your people to be charitable in their own congregation. It's not enough to teach your uh, congregation to sacrifice the red heifer. In other words, help people outside of the church and the network of Christ. You must also connect them with other ministers who are seeking to do what you're doing. They're seeking to do what Christ said to do, if that's what you're doing. This is the process. This is how it operates. So, that's a minister of his church. So, if you had a congregation already, say, you know, 50, 100 people in your congregation, can you find two that would like to bear witness in some form? Now, we have a specific form that we set up, and we don't like people to change it so that there's some sort of uniformity. But if we can get that testimony with two people, because that's what we have to do is establish everything with two or more witnesses. And then then we also see you as a minister. See, it's just as important that we see that those two witnesses continually contribute and participate and care about one another. But we also need to know that the minister cares about other congregations as much as he cares about his own congregation. And the only way to do that is to gather together with other ministers of congregations on a regular basis. It's not enough just to contribute to me or to one of the other members of his holy church. But you have to care about your fellow ministers. And if you care about them, then you care about those that they care about. Now you start becoming a body. In spirit and in truth. Because you actually, in truth, are contributing to the whole body. You're a part of the whole body circulatory system. It isn't about you become... You should be a moral guide to the people in your congregation. Everybody in your congregation should be a moral guide to everybody else in that congregation. We are all ministers of righteousness. You Congregants ha- are not relinquishing their responsibilities. They're not relinquishing their rights. They're not relinquishing their responsibilities. I went back to that again because of the fact that that is very important. To understand that rights are responsibilities. Which is where we started. The congregant is absolutely supposed to be the moral guide to his neighbor. And to his fellow congregants. And if he sees them doing wrong, he is ministered to them. By nature, he should be ministered. Because by nature, Christ should be in him. And as many as you love, you would also rebuke. You have a moral responsibility to give a good accounting of yourself to your fellow congregants, to your minister, to the ministers that your minister congregates with. And how you do that, that's your choices during the day. And the Holy Spirit has to guide you in that. But I can tell you this, that it should be filled with forgiveness. It should be filled with patience. It should be filled with charity. It should be filled with love for one another. 
But that's your responsibility of the ministers of His church. To each of you, the same as you have a responsibility to each of you and to the ministers of His church. You are all parts of the same body. Many parts. But that body is spiritual. In the physical world, we are not a giant corporate body of congregant and ministers except by witness. We're witnessing to a spiritual bond between us and Christ and therefore between us and each other. It's a love triangle. We love Christ. Christ loves us. Therefore, we by default love one another. Now, how does that manifest? Are we taking care of one another? Are we striving to become the social welfare system of a government based on faith, hope, and charity and the perfect law of liberty? Are we striving to practice pure religion by caring for the needy of our, the infirm? Not just widows and orphans, but, you know, a family can be overwhelmed by the difficulty of raising a child who has been damaged. I believe that we can actually heal those children. Or, or, or maybe a wife has become crippled and ill, or a husband, which, you know, the breadwinner may be, and so the great strains will be put on the family, especially if the children are still very young and can't work. How do we do that? Well, it varies from family to family, to situation to situation, because it varies. I can go down long lists and show you, well, with this family, their problem was here, and with this family, it was over here more, and over in this family had all these problems plus these problems and uh, because of location. If you're not concerned about that, you don't belong in an intentional community of free people. And you and if the people you are gathering with are not concerned with that, then you don't want to gather with them. So if you want an intentional community, create a virtual community based on faith, hope, and charity and the perfect law of liberty, based on people willing to come together to sacrifice for one another, to produce and create a network that provides a daily ministration through that faith, hope, and charity and the perfect law of liberty, or whatever intentional community you create, you will not have liberty. You will have people trying to get the judicial power in their hands, get the executive power in their hands, get the legislative power in their hands, and they'll be dictating expectations. Oh, the minister should act this way, and the minister should act that way, or we should get rid of him. A voluntary society isn't about somebody wielding a sword and cutting heads off every time Somebody doesn't do things the way you think they ought to be done. You know, the whole ISIS thing, you know, where they they burn women because they won't become, you know, have free consensual sex with them, which is bizarre. Um, they, uh, They cut people's heads off. They do all this stuff. That's a spirit rising up in the world that's already infesting your society and calling itself Christian. Time to repent. Well, until next time, peace on your house and may God be with you. God bless. 
You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.